there, friends. David Lightbringer here. And you know, even though House of the Dragon isn't called Game of Thrones anymore, it's still about the Game of Thrones, which is, of course, a reference to the struggle for power in King's Landing. It's just that now uh, there's dragons, and I'm not grabbing my boobs here. These, these are dragons on my jacket here. That's what I'm trying to show you. The dragons, so they're fighting for the, the, the power, the, the, the power in King's Landing. We got the, the great houses and the crown and... Well, you get the idea. In any case, politics has been referred to as the great game all throughout history. The struggle for power is subtle, asymmetrical, turbulent, and unforgiving. And as Cersei says, sometimes the game comes to the point where you either win or you die. Or at least that's what people believe. Episode two of House of the Dragon put the power struggle front and center as virtually every character was making power moves, scrambling to the defense, readjusting their strategy, or taking a big fat L on the chin. We also saw some more excellent storytelling techniques, and you know I love those. So let's dig into my episode two review, mini review, uh, thematic review, whatever. If you missed my symbolism breakdown of episode two, that's called the true sun. Yes, I know it's very cryptic, but it's a it's wordplay. S-U-N sun, S-O-N sun. And I also broke down the opening credit sequence in that one. I know everyone else did that, but I think I found something that no one else did. So check that out and make sure you're subscribed to the channel. All that stuff, comment, like, let's get on with the video. All right, so I think the final conversation of the show between Damon and Corliss did a great job of defining the theme of this week's episode, which is that power is never given, and it really can't be. Power has to be taken, or better yet, earned. If someone else gives you power, it's theirs to take away. So real political power only comes through something that you control or respect you've earned through your actions. All right, so Daemon Targaryen, fresh off being disinherited as heir to the Iron Throne, tries to gain some measure of power back by laying claim to Dragonstone, which is of course normally the seat of the heir. And then going even further, he stole a dragon's egg, of course, from the dragon pit right under the nose of King Viserys. Now, unfortunately, this wasn't real power because it was essentially a bluff. Although Daemon can certainly start a lot of trouble with Caraxes, he can't really start a meaningful rebellion against the crown, and nor does he really wish to. Sir Otto saw through Daemon's bluff and called him on it, and thus reduced Daemon's power. Otto also diffused Damon's power play by preventing Viserys from coming to Dragonstone, where Damon might have been able to win concessions from him. So after that, Corlys Velaryon rightly sees that Damon is now in a weak position, and he uses that leverage to recruit Damon for his own personal war in the Stepstones. The power that Damon does have, namely Caraxes and his martial prowess, will be more evident at war, and both men can see that. So in the end, it's a deal that Damon would be foolish to refuse. Now, the looming threat of war in the Stepstones itself reveals some pretty interesting power dynamics. Corliss and Rainey's are definitely right that continuing to do nothing, save for some pretty weak attempts at negotiation, does make Westeros and King Viserys look weak. The entire premise of the Targaryen dynasty, which is the only force that's ever united all of Westeros, is, of course, dragon power. That's why Daemon says, dreams didn't make us kings, dragons did. No one thinks to test a strong Targaryen monarch because dragons are simply an unmatched weapon of war. 
But if the king refuses to use his dragons, as his daughter rightly suggests that he do, then there's really no reason for the crab feeder to fear Westeros. And that's exactly what Corlys says. Thus, Viserys is doing a poor job at projecting power, being more distracted with the issues in King's Landing. I know Corlys keeps sounding that same note in every small council meeting, but he really is right. And by the way, the Targaryens have gone to war in the Narrow Sea plenty up to this point. Most recently, it was the Fourth Dornish War in 83 AC, where King Jaehaerys, mounted on Vermithor, brought fire and blood to army and ship alike, together with his two sons, Prince Aemon, riding Caraxes, and Prince Balin, riding Vagar. So that's a very formidable dragon trio, Vermithor, Caraxes, and Vagar. And by the way, Prince Aemon was the father of Princess Rhaenys and Caraxes' first rider, while Prince Balin was the father of Viserys and Daemon. And he, of course, was not Vagar's first rider, because I don't know if you've heard, but Vagar is very old. That's right. So the point is, there's definitely proof of concept here. A few dragons with the support of Corlys's navy really should have no problem cleaning out the pirate army of the crab feeder. More nefariously, one does have to wonder if Sir Otto isn't slow rolling the response to the Stepstones issue precisely because it bleeds Corlys Velaryon more than most. And of course, Corlys and the Velaryons are the other main great house besides the Hightowers struggling for power and proximity to the Targaryen royal family. This is a risky and careless move by Sir Otto, if so. But he's so aggressive about dismissing Lord Corlys and this very legitimate threat that I think it does have to be considered. One thing is for sure, Sir Otto is a man with a lot on his plate. A lot of schemes, that is. Obviously, his main play is to marry his daughter to the king, which he succeeds in by the end of the episode, and he's paving the way for that by making sure to check Rhaenyra's power at every turn. It starts with the heavy-handed smackdown in the small council, perhaps there's some better use for the princess's talents, which leads to Rhaenyra being handed the menial task of choosing the next Kingsguard. Wait, wait, that's not a menial task. That's actually super important. We'll come back to Otto and Alicent in a moment, because boy does Viserys make a botch of this. First of all, Rhaenyra really shouldn't be pouring wine for the small council members after the point that she's made the heir. She's too old for that trivial of a task. And Rhaenys shoves that point in her face later when she's basically telling Rhaenyra that she's not really the heir, but rather a placeholder until Viserys remarries and has a son. Even more absurdly, Rhaenyra is not just the heir to the throne, who's about to come of age, she's also one of Viserys' three dragon riders. And in fact, that's actually the capacity in which she's speaking up when she says, You have dragon riders, father. Send us. Not only is that a good suggestion, at least as a show of force, if Viserys isn't ready to commit to all-out war, right? I mean, at least let the crab feeder hear the flap of leathern wings to just remind him of what's at stake and maybe see if you can force him and the powers that support him in the triarchy to come to the negotiating table and give you a real offer. So Viserys, he's piling mistake on top of mistake here. As the heir and one of only three dragon riders, Rhaenyra has every right to speak up, and her suggestion is the right one. But Viserys allows Otto to dismiss her as if she were like a child of ten or something. Viserys should be building up Rhaenyra's power by giving her chances to cultivate respect amongst the High Lords. But he's done just the opposite here. Now, putting her in charge of the Kingsguard decision would have been a good way to do that, if it hadn't been done to dismiss Rhaenyra from the small council. Doing so in that manner implied that the Kingsguard decision was like busy work or child's play. 
And so Viserys actually managed to diminish Rhaenyra's power and the Kingsguard's importance in one stroke. Viserys also looks weak himself by allowing Otto to basically run things and make power moves in front of the entire small council. Otto definitely appears to be in charge for all intents and purposes, as opposed to just literally the hand of the king who carries out the intent of the king. It's more like Viserys is a sock puppet and Otto is the hand operating it. Now, more than anything, I want to draw attention to just how poorly Viserys is setting up his daughter to be able to rule the kingdom. He should be getting people used to obeying her, and he's doing just the opposite, allowing Otto to undermine her in front of the most important lords in the land. I don't know if Viserys consciously thinks of Rhaenyra as a placeholder, but he's definitely treating her like one. And by the way, that's why Rhaenyra's conversation with Rhaenys is basically the pivotal moment of her episode arc and possibly her season one arc in that it's kind of the moment that she realizes she's not really the heir and if she wants to hold on to that position she's gonna have to take some power for herself. Rhaenyra starts doing that by turning things around and sort of making the most out of that Kingsguard choice. Although her lack of decorum is a bit unseemly in that she should know to be polite to every knight even if they are just Tourney Knights. Rhaenyra does have a better idea of what the criteria should be for the Kingsguard. Not only does the Kingsguard protect the royal family, they also act as generals when the king goes to war, so she's right to prioritize battlefield experience, especially if there's a lack of that on the Kingsguard currently. Rhaenyra also has the wherewithal to stand up to Sir Otto, refusing to let him back her off of her decision. To do so after she had already stated publicly that she chose Sir Criston would have diminished her power even further. Rhaenyra's real power move, which Viserys should have applauded, by the way, and not chided her for, was, of course, her taking her dragon to Dragonstone to resolve the standoff between Daemon and Ser Otto. You could see Rhaenyra listening in the small council with a look on her face that meant business. But instead of asking for permission again, she's realized that she should keep quiet and then just act on her own. She also no doubt realized that Otto and Daemon have it out for each other, and would very likely make a mess of things due to their pride and animosity. She rightly guessed that Damon's respect for her would actually give her the leverage to force him to back down, and that's how it worked out, of course. In the end, this was the most important and heroic move that anyone made in the entire episode, because Rhaenyra prevented bloodshed and de-escalated the situation while elevating her own standing greatly. Remember, House of the Dragon is a story about the failure of the High Lords, Kings, and Queens to maintain the peace of the realm. So any action that any character takes that prevents violence and smooths tensions is basically heroism by definition. Now, the decision of Corliss and Damon at the end of the episode to go to war in the Stepstones is actually very similar to Rhaenyra's choice to intervene here. The situation in the Stepstones really is completely untenable, and if anything, the show is underemphasizing the economic damage to Westeros that this situation would be causing. Corliss and Rhaenys made a power play by putting their daughter forward rather publicly as a potential wife for the king. And having lost that battle, This is an absurdity. Corliss sees that he must assert his political power in some other way. As the commander of the navy, and really the owner of the navy, nobody can really stop him from dealing with Kragus Crabfeeder's pirate army, especially if he recruits Daemon to his cause. Along with his wife Rhaenys and her dragon Melis, that puts two of the three dragon riders in the realm on Corliss's side. And of course, Viserys isn't going to send Rhaenyra and Cyrax to stop them from going to war. 
So as long as they can prevail in the conflict, Corliss and Damon should come out looking like heroes. And they will have actually done something to protect the realm and maintain its strength. All right, at last we come to Alicent Hightower, who we're going to talk about very maturely and reasonably. And all the comments that we're leaving on this video are going to be very mature and reasonable and decent and non-vitriolic. Glad we had this talk. All right, so Alicent, she's one of the least powerful characters playing the Game of Thrones, at least to begin with. She's definitely more pawn than player, to use Peter Baelish's categorization. Now, there's an interesting debate about how much agency she actually has in her situation. And the show is doing a pretty good job of portraying things in a way that is open to interpretation. But in my opinion, a few moments are key to seeing what's really going on here. First, when Otto asks Alicent if she's going to see the king tonight, she responds, if you wish it, while basically trying to peel her fingernails off. She's clearly not thrilled about being used to control Viserys. That's what we're supposed to understand. However, she does go along with it and plays the part pretty well. The next key moment is earlier in the episode when Viserys asks Alicent, you don't tell Rhaenyra about our talks, right? I don't think she'd understand. Viserys isn't talking about Rhaenyra not understanding because she's not smart enough. He's saying that she wouldn't understand their growing relationship, meaning that she wouldn't be okay with it. So Viserys, in true Ostrich King fashion, therefore elects to keep their relationship a secret from Rhaenyra. We should be free to speak our minds to one another. You can say whatever you'd like. You are the king. until announcing that he was going to marry Alicent in the small council session, knowing full well that Rhaenyra wouldn't understand. I actually think Rhaenyra understands pretty well. Uh, she understands that she got played by her father and her best friend. But notice Alicent's expression as Viserys is announcing his decision, and that's what the camera focuses on when Viserys is announcing. She clearly knew what he was going to say, and was basically staring at Rhaenyra with dread to see how hurt and angry she would be. So Alicent is at best conflicted and at worst experiencing self-loathing, which by the way, could be the baseline explanation for her self-harming. Now let's go ahead and credit Alicent with some level of agency here. Like I said, she's definitely playing the part well and keeping her secrets when need be, both with Viserys and Rhaenyra. It's easy to dislike characters who keep secrets, but if you think about it, her choice is either to keep her relationship secret as Viserys asks her to, and as her father Otto wants her to, or to blow up the entire scheme. If she had told Rhaenyra, then Rhaenyra would have said something to her father, and thus Alicent would have violated Viserys' trust and essentially galvanized opposition to her being chosen as queen before she was chosen, which would blow up the plan. Therefore, I continue to remain very sympathetic to Alicent, even as I point out that she is keeping secrets and being deceptive. I think in the end, that's all part of the Game of Thrones, and she's basically being forced to play, so yeah. I'm not calling her a villain as of yet. You can if you want, but I'm not there yet. So while we're discussing this scene, let's talk storytelling techniques. How about the use of off-screen developments in this episode? The audience was essentially put in the same position as most everyone else trying to guess how far Alicent and Viserys' relationship had progressed. And it's only when Viserys announces that you realize Otto and Alicent knew what he was going to say before he said it, and that the fix was already in. Along the same lines, Damon's stunt with the egg stealing was 
miles more effective being dropped on us one bombshell after another in that letter that was read aloud at the small council. Bomb dropping letters read in public are after all a mainstay of A Song of Ice and Fire. John's reading of the pink letter in the shield hall of Castle Black comes to mind. And it was endlessly entertaining to hear Damon's bombastic proclamations read aloud one by one to the shaking jowls of the small council. In my opinion, this was much better than actually watching Damon skulk around stealing the egg. And by the way, I do think the shots from the promo of Damon skulking around with a dragon's egg haven't happened yet, as opposed to having been cut from this episode. Finally, before we wrap this up, let's spare a word for the people's champion, Sir Kristen Cole. That's right, Kristen Cole. Unlike the other High Lords playing the Game of Thrones, he is lowborn. And he's also of mixed heritage. And remember that at this point, Dorne has not been conquered and is not part of the Seven Kingdoms. So there's some antipathy towards them sometimes. So he's a real pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstrap story. He's essentially risen to the height of Kingsguard based purely on hard work and skill. And maybe just a little bit of dashing good looks. I mean, it doesn't hurt, right? So just remember that even though we're talking about all these other characters fighting for a seat at the table, fighting for political power, and so on, all of those characters are high lords who already have a base of power to work from. Or a dragon. Or both. Kristen, however, has none of that. So he's actually the most literal personification of the ethic that Corliss is speaking of at the end of the episode. I just love Kristen's cute little attempt at a verbal jab against Damon on the bridge. It was very Fisher-Price, my first courtly insult, and it clearly amused Damon, who was testing everyone there, but he did knock Damon off the horse, so you gotta give him that. All right, friends, thanks for watching this short little video. I would have talked all day about some of these power moves and conversations, but I could only do about a 12, 13 minute video and get it out by Saturday morning. So that's what we got. But I'll look forward to, of course, following up on some of these plot threads on the post game show right after episode three ends. So come and join me here on the David Lightbringer channel, and I'll be there with your post game breakdown and analysis right after the show. Cheers, everybody, and I'll see you Sunday.